Wendy Holden's latest books feature two women who got on the wrong side of the Windsors, Queen Elizabeth's royal house, and lived or died to regret it. Crawfee, Queen Elizabeth's very important World War II governess, and Wallace Simpson, the woman the world was led to believe stole a king's heart and forced his abdication, both came out of it badly. But have we been told the full story? Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and in today's Binge Reading, Wendy talks about her two latest books, The Governess and The Duchess, and explains why she thinks there are still truths to tell. We've got three ebook copies of The Governess to give away to three lucky readers in our new September promotion, Royal House Giveaway. Enter the draw on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com forward slash giveaway or on our Facebook page. And you'll find links to Wendy's books and contact details on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. I've got some exciting news on the Patreon front. First, the not-so-good part of it, I've discovered thanks to one of our listeners, Shakura, who especially liked Sarah Sue's Cherokee Nation episode, that Patreon's binge-reading link wasn't working. It was a very minor glitch, my fault. I struggle with the back-end stuff, so don't ask me why it opened for me, but not for members of the public. That's fixed now, and I'd like to give a shout-out to Shakura for alerting me to the problem and then becoming our first Patreon supporter once it was fixed. That was a thrill. Don't forget that you, like Shakura, can support Binge Reading on Patreon for the cost of a cup of coffee a month. You'll help defray the costs of sound editing, transcribing and hosting that I incur, simply setting all this up, and that doesn't include the hours it takes to read the books and schedule the interviews. As an extra bonus for your support, you'll receive Patreon-exclusive news, more great books of the authors that we've already talked to, and behind-the-scenes news on what's coming up next. Go to our binge reading on Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash the joys of binge reading and subscribe now. But now here's Wendy. Hello there, Wendy, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Oh, thank you so much, Jenny. It's so exciting to be talking to wonderful New Zealand, a country which I'd love to visit. When everything's possible, when the world's opened up again, I'll be over like a shot. Yes, it's a sore point for us because we're back in lockdown at the moment. Oh, I'm so sorry about that. Isn't that awful? They sent us us Delta from Sydney. Very unfair of them. (laughs) Oh, terrible. Listen, you've got The Governess and The Duchess, two fantastic books out in successive years. You've written 30 books, many of them bestsellers, Wendy, but releasing these two blockbuster reads in quick succession like this, it must be a bit of a career high for you, is it? Yes. Yes, it is, Jenny. And in so many ways, changing from chiclet to historic fiction is what they call in the trade a pivot when you swap one genre for another. But secretly... 
I've always wanted to write historical fiction. And these books in particular were burning to be written. And I almost feel as if they were waiting for me to do so. I mean, certainly when I picked up Marion Crawford's autobiography, The Little Princesses, in a secondhand bookshop, it really felt like fate. And the Duchess came directly out of writing The Governess. But it has been a huge challenge launching The Governess during the first lockdown and writing The Duchess during the second. But I always think what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah, that's right. And they've got virtually identical covers. They're very much uh, published as a kind of set. What did you consider these two women had in common, apart from perhaps the obvious thing of, you know, women done wrong by the British Crown. But that's sure, sort of sure. Obviously, the covers are, are meant to look similar, and I'm really proud of them. I just like to say I think they look really beautiful. I adore them, and they look similar because the stories have a lot in common. Because both Marion and Wallace came from outside the royal family, and both brought a fresh perspective into it, and both tried to have a modernising influence. However, as you say, both got on the wrong side of the Windsors, and both were condemned by history as a result. But what I've tried to show in both cases was that their stories have been distorted. And Wallace, in my view, was far from being the snaked, hip seductress out to steal the king from his throne. And this is what the Duchess is about. But the governess is a story of dedication, devotion and love. And and it's not the tale of a woman who betrayed her employers, which is how the royal family tried to paint Brooke Rolfe. Yes, yes. She was... I mean, I'm old enough, I must admit, I used to keep scrapbooks about the royal family when I was a tiny tot. This is an embarrassing admission, I guess. But I do remember Crawford from those days and the pictures of her with the princesses. So why do you think that she has sort of gone into virtual ignominy for so many years? Well, she, she, her story disappeared because she was kind of um, vaporised by the royal family, essentially. I mean, when her autobiography was published, The Little Princesses, she was cut off, she was ostracised, and she was terribly ashamed and sort of horrified by what had happened. So she sort of hid herself away. So there were two things going on. She hid herself away for basically the rest of her life. And because of the royal disapproval of her, it meant that any um, accounts written of those years, any biographies, any anything really really only had her as a footnote, if that. So she kind of disappeared from history. But that was a great opportunity for me because when I found her book, as I say, which is in a secondhand bookshop, I couldn't believe that uh, this story hadn't ever been, you know, looked at for such a long time because it was about 70 years since it had last reared its head because Crawford retired in 19... uh, Sorry, The Little Princesses was written in 1950, after which she just disappeared. So it's pretty much 70 years, fast forward 70 years, and Wendy Holden walks into a bookshop in Northumberland, Northern England, and picks it up and thinks, hang on. So that was just amazing. I mean, would you like me to talk about what it was about the story? Yes, absolutely. The reason I thought the story, first of all, I just thought, hang on a minute, what is this story? Who is this woman? Who? What's happening here? And once I started to flick through it, I just thought, this is it. This is the novel I, I want to write. And the reason for that is her story is so completely and utterly amazing. I mean, it, it combines so many elements. Um, there's glamour, drama, tragedy, and it covers a period of British history, which is the most seismic of the 20th century. I mean, she joined the royal family just before the abdication, which meant she saw the events of that close up 
and exactly as the Windsors did. And she kept the springside seat for the 1937 of coronation of King George and Queen Elizabeth. And then, if that wasn't enough, along came the Second World War, which again, the whole of which she spent with the royal family, and particularly with the little girls in Windsor Castle, crouching in the medieval dungeons as a Luftwaffe roared overhead. I mean, it couldn't be more dramatic. And that, so that was the second bit of the story in a way. And then finally, there was a drama of her leaving the family in the circumstances I've just described. But this is all without saying or referring to the beginning of the story, which is what drew me in the first place, because on the very first page of The Little Princesses, there's a paragraph which begins something like, I worked for the royal family for 17 years, but I never meant to do this. I never wanted to work with royalty. I trained as a teacher and I wanted to help poor children in Edinburgh. I wanted to work in the slums. So that was the, that was what really drew me in. I just thought, how did a woman who wanted to work with poor children in the slums end up working for the most privileged family in the world, basically? So that, it, and, and the story is an amazing one. I mean, it's, it's, it's a story of sort of coincidences and unlikely events. But m- more than that, it's a story of a young woman, Crawfee, who was one of the first generation of women in Britain who could train for a profession, who could, who could have a career post-First World War where society was opening up for women. She was a young professional woman, a very modern figure in the early 1930s when she was drawn into this uh, very traditional institution of the royal family. And one of the reasons she stuck with the job, having been very reluctant to take it, was that she felt the little girls, the little princesses, particularly Princess Elizabeth, who was the one she was most occupied with when she first began to work for the Windsors, they had this kind of bizarrely Victorian sequestered life and they weren't involved at all with how normal people lived. And she felt it was really important that they were were shown um, some degree of normality. And she made that her business to to try and bring normal life and the little princesses together. So it was a really interesting story. It isn't just the story of a kind of posh woman going along to be a nanny for two little princesses. It's a story of two worlds colliding, you know, and actually to the benefit of the Windsors, because one of the things that Crawford introduced to the Queen, as I say, was a degree of normal life. And these days, and throughout her life, but I suppose particularly now, given what's happening in the royal family, people refer to the Queen's good sense, they refer to her common touch and her kind of the way that she can identify with ordinary people and she sort of reads the mood of the nation. And I like to think that was because Crawford, all those years ago, introduced her to normal life. You know, took her on the tube, took her to Woolworths, took her swimming, showed her that there was more to life than the inside of a palace. So a really hugely important figure in the Queen's life. Yes, even at the, the very ending stages of the war, when the princess wanted to, desperately wanted to be part of the war effort and her family were utterly against it, even at that point, she helped her break through didn't she? She did help her great through. But the war, the war, the Princess Elizabeth's involvement in the war is really interesting because, of course, the Queen has made a lot of capital out of that over the years, the fact that she knows how to bleed a sump or change an engine or whatever it is. But actually, what was really interesting about that, as Crawford said in her autobiography, and, and, and part of which I included in The Governess, was that 
that was the point at which it was obvious to Crawfy that the war was about to end because there was no way the king was going to have his daughter involved in the war effort if there was any actual danger. So she knew then that it was all about to end. So it's quite interesting to think that was right at the end and that was a sign that it really was about to be over. But Crawfy herself wanted, she tried many times to leave royal service because she wanted to have um, a private life. She wanted to have a husband. She wanted to have children of her own. In, in the end, this was not possible because the Windsors insisted on keeping her working for them. But during the war, one of her efforts to escape was to go and work for a Wren, you know, be in the Royal Navy. And so she went to the king and said, you know, I want to serve. I want to be in the armed forces. I want to be a Wren. And he said, oh, for goodness sake, Crawford, if you went off to join the, the Wrens, you just end up cooking some old admiral's breakfast and if you're staying your job your war effort your job is to stay here looking after the girls so so the queen and i can do our jobs and of course the queen and 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 he were doing a hugely important job they were rallying in the nation at, at a time of great peril so at that point, you know, Crawford is is front and centre of the British war effort. So it's and and, and the Allied war effort, um, including you lots too. So it's all really you know amazing that that she was really in the frame at this kind of historic moment, and told that if basically she left her job, that you know the war would would be lost. <laughs> yes, <laughs> reading the governess makes us realise just how much has changed since yes. then. I mean, I guess it is seventy years so it is nearly a century when you look at it but they would never get away with treating uh, someone like Crawfy in their employ like that today would they and would they want to do you think? (laughs) Well Jenny that's such an interesting question because they did treat Crawfy very badly was it the Queen Mother basically who was behind it and of course the irony of it was the that she, the Queen Mother, was the person who wanted the book to be written in the first place. So the whole situation began with her. But, and one of the ironies of The Little Princesses, the book on which I based the governess, is that it was such a loving book. It was a loving tribute to the closeness of the royal family. Is a really stark contrast to, to the books published about them now, which tend to reveal some quite unflattering things. And that leads me to think that you know, would they want to treat someone now the way they treated Crawford? Well, it seems to me that they treat people almost worse, including each other. I mean, if we're to believe all the things we read about, or even some of the things we read about how Prince Harry is treating his family, they seem to be sort of even worse <laughs> with the way they treat each other than the way they were treating people who worked for them at the time. So it's difficult to say, really. But they have, I think the heart of this is that, that there is... The Windsors are a really fascinating family for, for so many reasons. And one of the reasons is that they do have a quite ruthless streak. And the way that Crawfrey was treated was quite ruthless. And I think the way Prince Harry seems to be treating his family is also quite ruthless. And the way they're responding, there's a certain amount of ruthlessness. So I think there's a steel Windsor steel. They're still flashing, I would say. And yeah, it's difficult to see that there's been a huge change, I must say. But I think that's all part of the interest, really, because you're never quite sure, are you, you know, what's what's really going on. That's very right. And growing up through the era of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, and seeing the public face that was presented of her over the years, and then reading these both these books, The Governess yeah. and The Duchess, you get a very different picture of that lady um, in those yeah. books. So much has been written about Wallace, and I wondered 
What made you think you might have something fresh or different to say about her? Really, as I said earlier, the Duchess grew out of the governess. And one of the reasons it, it, it emerged as a story was that when I was writing the governess, there was a point in the book in which they were at Balmoral and Wallace Simpson has just arrived at Balmoral and Crawfee's walking in the, in the woods around Balmoral and she comes across Wallace, who's in a sort of agitated state. And the reason for this is that she's arrived to find herself the centre of a maelstrom because and this actually happened. What happened was Wallace was invited up, well, she was, she was made, basically, to come up to Balmoral by the king, as he was then. Edward VIII had, had been king for six months. It made her come up to the castle. She didn't particularly want to, but she was made to come up. And when she arrived, he came to meet her. And this caused a huge furore because he was supposed to be opening a hospital in Aberdeen, which is where the station was, where she came up. You know, this is the kind of nearest station to Balmoral. He was supposed to be opening a hospital in Aberdeen and he didn't do it because he was going to meet her at the station. This ended up being all over the papers. And when she saw it, you know, it was it was a nightmare because she got the blame, obviously. But I, when I was writing that episode, I thought, I bet Wallace had no idea that was happening. I bet she had no idea about the hospital. I bet she had no idea that he was supposed to be doing that and he came to meet her instead. And, and she must have been furious that she got blamed for it. So I started to see a, an alternative version of all the terrible stories about Mrs Simpson. And the more... I looked into it because she became a bigger character in The Governess. She took up more space than I expected her to. And she ended up dominating that whole chapter and being quite a positive, sympathetic woman. And so after I'd finished The Governess, I started to look at Wallace as a character. And I began to find that there was a whole alternative version of her, which has never really seen the light of day. And particularly what I call her Cinderella years which were the years where she first came to London in the late 1920s when she came to marry Ernest. Ernest and she came to Britain to start a new life, really, because things had gone wrong for them in, in America and they wanted a fresh start. So Wallace came to London and she was hoping that she'd make friends and that she'd have some fun. But in fact, it didn't happen. The British really didn't weren't interested in her. She was a divorcee. They didn't have any money. They didn't have any connections. You know, she was very, very lonely and she had to get to grips with this strange new city with its terrible weather and the Cockney accent she couldn't understand but she did lots of interesting things that she did her own shopping which is unusual for the time and she tried to have dinner parties cooking American food and doing sort of American style things but it never really worked and it was all really difficult and funnily enough one of the things she found most bizarre about the British was their complete obsession with royalty she just couldn't understand that at all so I, I having established that this version of Wallace, which I based on her autobiography, actually, and also his, Edward VIII's autobiography, and the various accounts at the time of, of people that knew them both, a much more positive, sympathetic woman. So my story in The Duchess was to trace how she got from this very unlikely low base of being someone that no one was interested in, to being the sort of dazzling favourite of the world's most eligible bachelor. And it is an amazing story and involves so many incredible personalities and unlikely things. 
And it's very dramatic. And I had that, again, that feeling that I had with the governess, that even though I was writing about a really well-known person, I was breaking fresh ground and I, went, and I was shining a light into areas that had never really been looked at because everybody thinks she's this snake-tipped seductress, as I was saying earlier, who wanted to steal a king from his throne. No one's ever really been interested in the idea that she there was any other version of her. But the actual version I uncovered seems to be much closer to the truth than any of the sort of, you know, ghastly versions of her that seem to be, you know, the, the accepted um, truth, really. So, yeah, that, that was really interesting. Yes, you mentioned earlier about the ruthlessness, and that, yeah. that rings a bell with me because really this book shows up a side of the Prince of Wales, Edward VIII. I mean, yeah. he, he often has come across as rather a weak character who got yes. captured yes. by this woman, and you yeah. present yeah. quite a different story, don't you? Yes, yes, I think that's absolutely, I, I don't think he was weak, and I, and I don't think he was pushed around at all. I mean, my, I don't want to sort of spoil the story too much, no. but my version of, of, of their relationship was, is, is very different from the, the accepted version. I mean, I think that he saw something in her. He saw many things in her, actually. I mean, I think they, what was, that they had dark things and, and sort of bright things binding them together. I mean, the dark things would be things like they they both had terrible childhoods and they both had awful experiences um, with addiction, not, not personally, but people who were close to them. So Wallace had this terrible, abusive first husband. And in fact, having read her account and, uh, and other accounts of the horrors of her first marriage, it's really hard to think of her as, you know, as, as this terrible woman because she suffered so much. He had an awful childhood. And one of the things that was interesting about his, well, again, it, the idea that he's this selfish, sort of weak, slippery, treacherous person was completely blown out of the water for me by discovering the story of what happened with his brother George, the, the Duke of Kent, as he later became. The Duke of Kent was a heroin addict and he nearly died. He was very ill and, and he was in, in an absolute state. And his brother, Edward, uh, the Prince of Wales, took him in and looked after him and, and basically saw him through and saved his, his life. And he did it by sitting by his bedside, you know, 24 seven, just sort of willing him to survive. And it went on for, for months. So the idea that he's this kind of awful, feckless person was, was completely confounded by that story. But I don't think he, he was a weak man. And I think he certainly realised that he didn't want to be king and that he would not be a good king. I think one of the, the, the sort of shocking things for him was the speed at which his father deteriorated because when George V died in 1936, it wasn't expected. It was, I think... The Prince of Wales thought he had a, new, a few more years, you know, a good few more years being the Prince of Wales. And so suddenly to be hurled into, onto the throne was a complete nightmare. So I don't think he wanted to do it. I think he knew that he wasn't going to be any good at it. And I think one of the reasons for that is it wasn't so even uh, his temperament, which it wasn't particularly, he wasn't interested in, in being bowed and scraped to. He didn't like the formality. He hated all the sort of routine of it, the sort of chain, being chained to a banqueting table, as he called it. He wanted to get out there and do modern things, but they, they, this wasn't easy to do. But I don't think he wanted children. I really don't think he wanted children because he'd had this awful childhood, as I say, and I don't think he was a particularly paternal person. So I think, and Obviously, that's a problem. You can't be a king who doesn't want children. So I think he absolutely looked around and thought, you know, the obvious person to do this job is my brother. He's got these 
you know, world famous little princesses and this wonderful crowd pleasing wife, I don't want to do it. So he should do it. So I think when he met Wallace, as well as really liking her for many reasons, including the fact that she encouraged him in his um, wish to modernize the monarchy. And he loved her because she was American. He loved Americans. He loved their modernity. He loved their kind of pizzazz and their sort of know-how and their, you know, their their ingenuity and, and their informality. He loved all that. But I think the fact that she was a divorcee and the fact that she didn't want children either and the fact that she, you know, was was foreign, I think were completely crucial because he knew that she was going to be the absolute last person he was going to be accepted and I think he deliberately pursued her because of that I think he really loved her but I think the fact that she was all those things i.e the most unsuitable woman on the planet to be the Queen of England made her the most suitable woman on the planet as far as he was concerned because he could then and I think he I think he it wasn't that she used him for her own ends, her own social climbing ends, as is often said. I think it was completely the other way around. Because that makes makes so much more sense when yes. you look at the events, you know, yeah. it, nothing else makes any sense. It was so weird what happened over the abdication. The things he did, the acts, the actions he took, <coughs> the decisions he made were all so crazy. But when you look at them in that way, that they were all deliberate, they make perfect sense. Yes. Do you think that he would have chosen that path? I mean, you get the distinct impression in your book that he had a different idea about what was going to happen after that, that yes. he would find a nice little quiet corner in England. and Exactly. Be, exactly. Uh, and that, of course, he didn't expect to be exiled. Would absolutely. that have made a difference if he'd understood Oh, it? absolutely. I'm sure, I'm sure what happened must have been a nightmare. I don't think he had any idea that uh, he would never be allowed to come back to to live in England. I think that would have, he would never have done it, I'm sure, if he'd realised that would be the consequence. I think he had, I mean, and that's another, it, it relates to what I, I just said about how it only makes sense if you look at it in, in, in the light of the fact that he was he thought he was doing something positive. He didn't see what he was doing, I don't think, as something terrible. I think he saw it as something positive because he, in, in his mind, he was leaving the throne for someone who was going to do a much better job. And in fact, he did a much better job. So he was right. And so part of that positivity, part, I mean, I'm not saying that he kind of enjoyed it and went about it with a sort of light heart and, and a sort of skip in his step. I think it was a complete traumatic nightmare, the whole thing. But I think in his, he, his intentions were positive. I think he wanted to leave the throne, to, to give the throne to someone who was going to do a better job. And, and that was the kind of end of it, really. He didn't want to do it, but he did want to serve. He did want to be part of the royal family and he did want to do his bit, but he, he wanted to do something at, at, at a lower level than, than, than being the king, something that would allow him to have some kind of private life. This is all very Prince Harry territory, obviously. But it wasn't received in that way. And he ended up, as you know, as you say, being exiled for the rest of his life and only allowed to come back when he was dead, which was terrible and not what he intended at all. But, you know, he it was all out of his hands because this obviously was went became a constitutional historical matter and his reputation has uh, never recovered. But I don't think he intended it to work out that way at all, no. How much do you think that the implacable dislike that Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, had for him made that the end result? I mean, that it went on Yes, absolutely. Oh, completely. She was completely behind that. And the reason for that was she did not want any threat to her 
husband's reign. You know, she wanted him to be able to... She wanted, He obviously wasn't a very confident king, at least to start with. I mean, it wasn't until the war began that they really found their, found their feet, George VI and, and Queen Elizabeth. Up until then, they were quite unpopular. They were seen as, as quite bum, bumbling, quite sort of stiff and dowdy and very, very different from the kind of glamorous king that uh, should, in some people's minds, should should have been the king, you know, even though Edward didn't want to be the king. But he obviously was a very glamorous, very charismatic person. And George VI was neither of those things. But that turned to, that turned out to be an advantage during the war, of course. But she didn't want any kind of rival. She didn't want any alternative court. She didn't want anybody casting her husband into the shadow. They had to be the main act. And so... He, that's why Edward had to be kept away. So, and that's mm. why they were kept away. But yeah, she was implacable, and she was she really could really hate people. <laughs> the Queen Mother. She, you once you got on the wrong side of her, you were in trouble. Definitely. Yeah. Do you think that in the end they had a happy life together in France? You know, I I, I don't know about that, and and, I, and in fact, I haven't um, made that my remit because I'm. In all these stories, particularly this one, I suppose, and actually my next one as well, I'm interested in in what what leads up to the big moment. You know, I'm interested in the backstory. So, and I don't know. I mean, I think they resigned themselves to it. I think Wallace had a very difficult time because she had to entertain him. She had to compensate for everything he'd lost, even though he'd given it up willingly. She had to be the sort of, you know, make sure that his days were filled for the rest of his life, for the, for the next uh, 36 years, which was tough, you know. So I think they did have fun, but I think it was hard work and it wasn't they'd hoped for. So, yeah, in some ways, I think, yeah, but I think it was difficult. Pretty amazing parallels with recent history. And you, you make a, a slight reference to, quotes, Americans joining the royal family in the end notes yeah. for this book. And I couldn't wait to see a Wendy Holden book on Meghan Markle. Do you think there's one ever likely to happen? <coughs> well, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? Somebody was saying to me, well, you've got you've done the governess, you've done the Duchess, and my next book about Princess Diana was going to be called Princess, so I could end up with the actress. <laughs> and that would be make a lovely fall for some. I don't know. I think it would be less, it's a less attractive prospect because more is known about her. And she doesn't, she, she, the thing about Wallace and about Marion Crawford and to a certain extent about Diana is uncovering what nobody really knows about any, any about their lives. But there's quite a lot is, is, is known about Megan. And I'm not sure I could uncover anything that was entirely surprising and, and would show a completely different side. But it's not impossible. But I, I, I think I might I might finish on it with Diana actually in this, this trilogy. My trilogy of um, women who um, shook up the House of Windsor. Yes, and there's too much of Megan's story that is still to unfold, I think, really, too, isn't there? I think that's right. I think it's difficult to say. I think you need, I think with all these stories, you need a bit of, that's a good point, very good point, Jenny, you need, you need a bit of distance because they have to be, I mean, the reason I'm writing about Diana now is that she is a generation since she died and she's now is a proper historical figure, whereas before she was too close but now you can you can you can look at that whole era and you can see it in some kind of context and you can see what it possibly signified. But with Megan now, there's nothing you can't do that. There's not enough distance. It's it doesn't. The, as you say, I think the full story is yet to unfold. 
and who knows what direction it's going to go. Oh, absolutely. Who knows what direction it's just yeah. totally. But that's the thing about the Windsors. They are they are the gift that keeps on giving when it comes to to writing a novel. You know, there's there's so many amazing stories. These I always wanted to write about them because they always seem to me, even when I was little, they always seem to me like characters from a novel, like characters from a story. You know, they're such huge personalities, so different, so dramatic, and the storylines are kind of completely soap opera like. They're so unlikely, you know, so and so amazing. Amazing that they just seemed to me incredible that no one had written a novel about any of them. So I, I felt that, that was breaking new ground, as I said earlier. It's uh, really been interesting. We've taken a lot of time talking about this, but it's just such a fascinating topic. Isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> I was hoping we were going to get on to some of your earlier work, but I think we'll have to save that for another day. Uh, okay. There's, there's just one thing that I wanted to sort of round off, and that is, are you seeing your future writing now in terms of historical fiction rather than going back to the chiclet sort of stuff. Is that, yeah, is absolutely. That a- yeah, absolutely. I, I enjoy it very much. I mean, I, I think I've always secretly hankered after writing historical fiction. And the, and the reason is that, and, and particularly modern history, uh, so, so the periods, are, you know, the 20th century, because it's so close and yet it's so different, particularly the early years of, of the 1930, of the, of, the 19th, of the 20th century. I mean, when I was writing The Duchess and when I was writing The Governess too, it just being back Back in the 1930s and the parallels between then and now, which are so close, I mean, in terms of unrest, in, in terms of you know, political convulsion, in terms of you know, sort of neoconservatism and the, sort of the, the resurgence of right-wing politics, all those things, and so similar, and yet in other ways so impossibly distant in, in terms of manners and popular culture. And, you know, so it sort of comes towards you very, it, it seems very close, and in, in, in other ways it seems very, very distant. So it's a kind of fascinating tension, you know, I've, I've enjoyed living in in the 1930s, and I, and I find it um, extraordinary that it was that the way things were then, you know, before the Second World War, before the welfare state, how people lived to so close in time in in such a difficult way, you know, such difficulties, such extremes in society, you know, the royal family. This is one thing that Crawfee was concerned with was the fact that there was all all this unrest there were the hunger marches there, there was all the unemployment all this going on outside the palace gates sort of, you know practically rioting sometimes and yeah. and the royal family in in the palace being almost completely immune to it she just didn't feel that was a safe way to live and she wanted you know them to be more aware of what was happening outside if i find all the political side of it as interesting as the as the royal family side of it because these yeah. two situations uh, you know work in tandem and it comes through that Prince of Wales was perhaps more aware of that than anyone else in the in the royal family at that time yeah he absolutely he, he made he was very interested in working conditions and wanted to improve the lives of working people he could see that it was a problem he used to I mean it used to be the despair of his of his equerries and the people that went with him on visits, you know, that he would go to a slum, say, and insist on going in every single flat and, and they would all be going, oh no, not another. And he'd be sort of popping in and having cups of tea with all, all these sort of poor, poor and sort of broken people. And he just used to be absolutely wretched about it, but and desperate to do something. But it was difficult to know what to do. And that actually touches on on what you were saying, what you just sort of briefly brushed about the 
Merican entering the royal family because one of the questions that these books ask is how possible is it to modernize the royal family how modern can it be you know does it is it something that modernity is it's just like putting salt on a slug it shrivels it shrivels it up because it's not something that can be modern so it's it's a sort of constant question you know totally because books. prince of wales did also it comes through in, in in the duchess have a real a reality check about what he was actually going to be able to do as king he, understand, he understood that in a limited constitutional monarchy he was really yeah. just a figurehead absolutely and that's the way it had to be i mean he he couldn't go around because if he started meddling in 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 social conditions and and employment law and all this stuff that that was politics that was political and he couldn't get involved in that you know he mm. could he, he could only be a figurehead mm. he could go and you know make sympathetic noises but he couldn't do anything because the doing was the department of, of the government and that was not something he could be involved in yeah so it so yeah we, and we see this playing out you know today well prince charles is hasn't been making so many noises in that respect recently but that certainly used to be one of his specialities. And of course, Prince Harry is, you know, supposed to be wanting to do more progressive things. And, and one of the things that Meghan Markle is supposed to be, have is credited with introducing him to is sort of progressive causes that she felt that he should be involved in. So there's always a tension between the traditional ways of the British monarchy and the fact that they they represent privilege and they represent tradition and an unchanging way of life and and the fact that the country around them is is changing all the time and, and expects to have some vaguely relevant um, figureheads, not just you know ones that uh, don't seem to have any idea what's going on. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's. I think, I'm not sure it's resolvable, but in the irresolution of it is the interest. I think you know, and, yes. and you see these different characters tra- grappling with it in, in their different ways. You see Crawfy grappling with it. You see Edward the Eighth grappling with it. It's and and now you may, you may see Prince Charles and, and Harry doing the same thing. So yeah. it's uh, fascinating. Yeah. Look, turning to Wendy as reader because we are mm. running out of time, and this is the joys of binge reading. Yeah. It's really set up this podcast for readers of popular fiction to look for books they might not <coughs> want to put down. So tell us yeah. about the books you don't want to put down. I've read, I don't know, the, the, the last book I read that I really, really loved, and I think it's one of the best books I've read for years and years and years and years, is Sarah Will- Winman's Still Life. Have you heard of that? No. It's called, oh, it's so brilliant. It's, it's St- Sarah Winman wrote uh, a novel. She, she first became well-known for a book called When... God was a rabbit. That was her first book, which was quite well received and did really well. But this one is it came out about a month or so ago, and it's called Still Life. And it's I, I couldn't recommend it enough. It's been. Can you get the BBC Sounds app in New Zealand? Did you you get the BBC there? Don't you? Yes, I'm not sure if we can get the app. Okay, because on the BBC Sounds, where you listen to the radio, they recently did a an audio book of it, and it was just so wonderful. So I could, so that was that. I definitely recommend that would be my my number one recommendation. Fantastic. Tell us a little bit about it. Okay, it's it's set in well, it's it's vaguely based on a room with a view, Ian Forster's room with a view, but it's about what's really beguiling and wonderful about it is it's it's about a gang of friends, and they they they're people from the East End of London, and they're kind of one's an ex-soldier one's a publican one's a pub singer one's a kind of piano player and one's a girl and one's a kind of old bloke so they were a bit like sort of Chaucer's pilgrims in a way they were kind of motley crew and they end up going to live in Florence 
because the soldier has been left this incredible flat by someone that he helped during the war because he was in Italy during the war. And it's all tied up with art and with the kind of Italian way of life. And it's just so full of sunshine and just so full of sort of wonderful friendship. And it basically carries on from the 1940s and ends sometime in, in the 80s, I think. And it just sort of follows them through the different decades and the different things that happen to them. But they're all such wonderful characters and they're all so lovely and they all get on so well and, and they're all so funny that it's just a kind of, it's an account of a, a particular type of, of British character, but it's also universal because uh, it's all about friendship and about love and about the pleasures of eating and sunshine and art and, the, and beautiful old places. So it kind of takes you away into a whole world. We definitely needed that at the moment, don't we? <laughs> definitely, definitely. Have you got, but you're, you're in the middle of winter, aren't you? We're just coming out of winter. It'll be spring, supposedly, next month. But yes, as I mentioned, we've just gone back into lockdown again. So that oh. was a bit of a nuisance. But we are very <laughs> lucky. So we've terrible. got a small We've got a small population and, as you know, we've got a sort of very regimented Prime Minister who likes to think she's going to beat it. So we're doing all the right things. And the country is behind her. It's quite, I mean, there's very very little of the, I mean, they're having quite distressing protests in in Australia at the moment from people who are sick of being in lockdown. There's nothing, there's a very small contingent of that sort of opinion here. Most of the country is well behind her. So hopefully we'll get... Yeah, absolutely. She's definitely hugely admired over here, as I'm sure you know. She's, she's, because I mean, we have got the most, I I mean, I I don't really have words to describe our our government or our Prime Minister, but um, she's definitely someone that we heartily envy you as running your country. (laughs) I know that your husband is a political um, consultant and I did wonder if there was going to be a political um, book coming sometime because Boris and some of the other members of your government are just ripe for sort of fiction, aren't they? (laughs) Yeah, well, they're ripe for something, that's for sure. (laughs) I, yes, I mean, I I do get asked this sometimes and I would really love to, but I'd rather do my historical fiction, really. And, And I think that it's really odd that there aren't more political novels coming out. I mean, it's very strange. You would think it would be a brilliant time for political fiction. Killerly satire, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very little. And and not even any kind of great big sort of dramas like, you know, House of Cards type things. I mean, that was really the last really, really big successful one. I just don't understand why that's the case, because as you say, you know, it's, it's a perfect time. But the trade always say, the book trader will say, oh, politics doesn't sell and, you know, people don't really want it. But I, I mean, I, I'd love to read a, a really great political yeah. satire. Yeah. So, you know, may, maybe I'll get onto it. But at the moment, when we're all living through it, you sort of want to escape from it, don't you really? I'm not so sure that I could, I could keep my sort of fury in check, you know, so it would end up being a kind of really miserable book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thinking of House of Cards and TV renderings of things, both of these books, The Duchess and The Governess, just absolutely have such connotations of the crown. You could see oh, new yes. TV series for both, couldn't yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, you absolutely could. There, there are some Americans at the moment um, sniffing around The Governess, so I'm really, really hoping something comes of that because it would be great. I've always, I always, I've always thought that it would be a great series, so hopefully something will come of it. I'll keep you posted. Great. Look, um, talking about what's coming next, we, you've mentioned the Princess Diana book. Tell yeah. us just a little bit more about that. Yeah, I, well, I really, it's, it's similar to... 
the Duchess in the sense that I'm looking at the period before she became very well known. So I'm looking at the forces that created this woman, this, this uh, who was that, uh, actually wasn't a woman when she first emerged onto the world stage. She was only 19. So I'm looking at her background. I'm looking at her, her childhood and how she came to meet Prince Charles. And I, again, I'm very interested in the political context of her life because you know, basically, it, it's as with all these stories, and a bit possibly more <clears throat> has more in common with the Crawford story in a funny way. Because and Diana was growing up in the nineteen seventies, nineteen sixties, and nineteen seventies, and this is a, a time of great political change, great social change, and yet she was growing up in a completely Georgian way. You know, the way that she was being brought up hadn't really changed for hundreds of years. So I was interested in this. Really, I mean, the fact that when she went down the aisle at St. Paul's, she was a virgin bride, you know, and she thought she was marrying her Prince Charming. And it was this kind of incredible medieval fantasy that we all bought into, but of course turned out to be anything but that. And in fact, at the time was anything but that. So I'm sort of, well, she was a virgin. I'm pretty sure that, but that's about the only part of it that, that was actually true. Because of course it turned out to be not the perfect marriage and 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 not the perfect life and not the perfect anything. But her background was so complicated and so sad in so many ways and so dramatic and so glamorous and yet so lonely too. So I just wanted to put together the story of of how of the forces that created her and, and kind of explained in a way that the things that happened afterwards. You know, because mm. she so desperately wanted to to she really wanted to marry Prince Charles. She really thought that he was going to be everything that uh, that she wanted him to be. And, and the reality was so different. But I wanted to look at why she wanted to be rescued by a prince, what things had happened in her background that, that made her, you know, that, that was the way she wanted to go rather than being educated, rather than having a job, rather than having a career, you know, all of which she could have done. But she wanted this sort of, you know, very old-fashioned in a way sort of fantasy so uh, yeah so looking into that but it, it, it is the and her family and her friends and also brilliantly because I remember myself because I was a teenager at the time that the whole Sloan thing you know the whole 80s Sloan thing the kind of that which was so dramatic when it first burst into the world view this kind of these young upmarket wealthy young people who lived in West London and what did they do how did they live who were they it was all a kind of like a new world you know so just sort of and at the same time there was punk you know and and there were there were strikes and there were riots and so it was all so many different things going on at the same time a really interesting period of which she was right in the in the middle of, and of course the birth of the of um, the paparazzi and the the birth of twenty four hour news and and the kind of media as we now know it, which wasn't uh, and celebrity culture. So many things all happened at once in that period, and they're yeah. all part of her story. <clears throat> Duchess, you frame it very very, uh, I think very cleverly with the funeral. And so all the way yeah. through the book, we come back to that touchstone of here yeah. she is right at the end of the story. And then we yeah. flip back into, and I could see that Diana's Diana's yes. trajectory could be framed in various exactly. similar way. Exactly. Yeah. You're exactly right. Yes, I am ending. I am beginning at the end. Exactly. Yes, completely. Her story is so stark and so dramatic and mm. and 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 her end had so many connections with her beginning and, and the way she died and the way she lived so absolutely yeah the end is the beginning 
So can't, yeah, <laughs> can't wait. So when's that one out? Well, hopefully by this time next year. Hopefully, if I can sort of get cracking on it, it's been a bit difficult with all the lockdowns because, as you know, because your whole family who's who've been getting on with their schooling and all the rest of it are suddenly under your feet all the time, <laughs> and you're you know. So I mean, instead of sitting writing your your great novel, you find yourself unloading the dishwasher and cooking four thousand meals a day. So it's been a bit like that. <laughs> But I'm hoping that when they all go back, I'll um, I'll be, get, be able to get on with it again. Uh, that's definitely my plan anyway. This time next year, so it should be it should be um, you know finished by the end of the spring with any luck. That's great. Look, Wendy, where can readers find you online? Well, I've got my own uh, website, which is wendyholden.net. Uh, so that's what lowercase what one word wendyholden.net or I'm and if you go to that you'll find all the connections with um, Instagram and Twitter and uh, Facebook. Fantastic. We'll put all of those in the show notes with links so that they'll be easily found by people thank who are you. listening to this. That's fantastic. Look, thank you so much. We've gone over time, but it's just been wonderful talking. Jenny, it's been lovely to talk to you. It's so thrilling. And I can't believe I'm talking to you in New Zealand. And it's 10 o'clock in the morning there. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.